Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. What cultural change would improve the health and wellness of your society? Today we chat with Jana Skorstengard, the criminology researcher, about cultural ideas such as retributive or punitive justice. That essentially means... Whenever we decide punishing someone is the appropriate consequence for them transgressing the social contract, when someone commits a crime, they get punished. That's how it works, right? Well, we're talking more about social leadership today. So we're talking about other strategies that may actually solve the problems better. Another example of social leadership that might be helpful for you is when I'm gaming and I see antisocial or harmful behavior, maybe slurs from a user online, possibly a teenager, possibly a child, maybe neither, unfortunately. Um, what responsibility do I have to intervene or improve the culture? We ask other important questions like, is it possible to release only nonviolent offenders? Is it possible to release nonviolent offenders with a temporary indefinite leave of absence where they're under house arrest? That assumes they have a house to go to, relatives, etc., friends even. We ask, should we be releasing our nonviolent offenders not only to save ourselves, but perhaps to save them? How would such a release reduce COVID-19 in non-incarcerated populations? We all understand we're all connected, that prison guards have to go home at some point, that their families get exposed to them, and that their families are in our communities, but... There are other things to consider as well. I think most importantly, what I find interesting is how would an experimental release like that, as I don't believe anything like this has happened before in history, how would that affect our way of thinking about imprisonment and punitive justice if letting nonviolent offenders live under house arrest in a sort of parole? How, I guess it would be a very specialized kind of parole, but what if that doesn't increase crime again? If it doesn't increase crime again, what would that say about the, quite frankly, um, anachronistic, if not in some cases barbaric measures that we go to having people in facilities where they're exposed to assault and rape? That's not exactly a humane way of dealing with our problems. So I'd invite you to sort of reconsider. But before I get to the session, I want to mention a correction. I did say that in Manitoba, 98% of all the girls who are incarcerated are indigenous. That's actually incorrect. It's Saskatchewan where 98% of all the girls who are incarcerated are indigenous. In Manitoba, it's 82% of all of the girls and 81% of all the boys. Keep in mind the general population of Saskatchewan that is indigenous is uh, at the time of these statistics, it was between 14 and 15% indigenous. So we're talking about a significant difference. Links for all the stats are in the long episode description, which you can find on Patreon or on any podcast hosting site that allows for a long description. Otherwise, let's get to the session and you can hear more from the criminologist herself. So I'll welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Jana Skorstengard a researcher in criminology who got her honors degree in, it was also in criminology in your bachelor's, right? Yep. And then is now a master's candidate at the University of Ottawa. Welcome, Yana. Thank you. 
So we did a session recently talking about COVID and risks to society and ways of sort of thinking about coming up with creative solutions to some of the problems that were that a lot of countries are grappling with right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's so fascinating about COVID that really brings people together on a global scale is all of these different leadership styles are being exposed to the same challenge and we're getting to see how different ideologies cope with the same problem. Yeah. It's a super interesting experiment that would never get approval from an ethics board. (laughs) (laughs) Not in a million years. They'd look at it like, yeah, what the fuck were you thinking? (laughs) Why would you write this? We're going to rip this up for you and then we're going to burn it. And then we will send you. And then after we have uh, dipped the ashes in lime, we will send you the charred remains with the instructions (laughs) never to be opened again. And also you're expelled. (laughs) (laughs) And also (laughs) you should uninstall and never play this game again. Yeah. I would like to uninstall COVID-19. <laughs> oh my I'd God. I'd be super down for that. Gamers are horrible. As a, as a the typical rant aside that we tend to get onto where one of us is just like, <laughs> I need to bitch for a second. So I haven't been told to go kill myself recently in a video game, which is good. That hasn't happened oh. to me since I was like 14. But yeah. someone did recently tell me to uninstall and never play again. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not doing that badly. <laughs> See, that's why I play Animal Crossing and I don't play competitive games. Right. Yeah. So this was someone on my own fucking team, but he was, he was playing really badly and he was taking it out on everyone on the team. Oh my God. And I tried and I wasn't by any means like the MVP or the best person on the team. I was probably right there with him. I was doing significantly better than he was, in my opinion, um, from the numbers, because I'm a numbers-based human. And um, hilariously, I was playing Heroes of the Storm, which is a multiplayer online battle arena. It's a style of game that's now been shortened to MOBA that was made famous by Defense of the Ancients, otherwise known as Dota. So, um, TLDR, sometimes people will take stuff out on other people on their team. Yep. And when you have an unpleased environment, it is very much the same kind of socialization experiment and when you're an older person that's had a lot of time to chill the fuck out you tend not to be rattled by a loss as much and then you play with some 12 year old from kansas that is just losing his mind (laughs) over like being unable to accept losing at something because it's the it's a significant part of his self-esteem and identity is that you know he's an elite player of a thing and it's very important to him that he's smarter than people and you start challenging those preconceptions and a person's identity kind of starts unraveling and they just go absolutely ballistic on everyone around them. Especially if you're 12. I mean, they're, they're fragile anyway. So fragile creatures. And and I don't envy the next six years of their life. Oh God, no. So it's like, I try and have compassion and just like, remember that when you're part of a community, communities are what raise children. Yeah. And gaming is no different. Yeah. It's a community. You're dealing with children. In a lot of cases, those children may not be getting the parenting that they could be getting from their parents, especially if they're playing 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Um, You know, you know that there's a void that's being filled there. That's not the case for everybody, but um, it certainly was the case for me when Mm -hmm. I was younger and gaming 10 or 12 hours a day. Wow. This just turned into an episode about (laughs) gaming somehow. (laughs) Um, We're supposed to be talking about COVID and Canadian prison systems, which we will get back to. Um, But yeah, so I just try and remind myself that like, if I'm the kind of adult gamer that is just like, oh, these fucking teenagers, like, I don't want to fucking deal with them. You know, like, like, you're such an asshole. And like, just like giving teenagers shit. It's like, yeah, it's no surprise they grow up feeling like that's okay behavior because it's being modeled. Yeah. Um, At one point, I had chimed in, in fairness, um, being like, hey, I've noticed you're fighting with everyone on the team. And I don't think that that's like helping get us closer to winning like we're literally on the same team and all this like super defensive stuff because this all came about because of how heroes were drafted and picked one person had wanted to play a hero and this person was like oh i really want to play that hero too well i guess it's fastest person to get to that hero and like stole the hero even though that person was waiting to talk about group consensus because they wanted to talk about team balancing and composition which is a thing when you're doing drafting yeah yeah so this person took the hero without any thought for the other person. I was like, hi, I got to it first. And like, obviously like probably, you know, a 13 year old behaving like they're six and a half. Like, yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah. that's fine. 
it's fine. Um, but this other person was like super upset because they'd really wanted to play this hero and they'd wanted to play this hero for a couple of games and they'd been like waiting because of, you know, the other team got it or like whatever. And they were just like not happy. They were like the, the looking down, trudging in rain boots through puddles, kind of unhappy. And it was like, huh, I feel like I'm dealing with two younger folks and they're struggling through a disagreement. So I was like, and, and the thing is the guy that, that had, quote unquote ninjad, which is the term, but stolen the uh the pick, um, was just being like bellicose about it. Was like absolutely like this was totally fair, it's fine, like I don't know what you're complaining about and like oh, God. just being like such an asshole about it. And I was like like, hey, you might notice like no one else is in this much conflict. Um you might be well served to just like ask yourself like why am I the one that seems to be getting into this much conflict with all these people? Um he did not like that question. <laughs> I was like trying to offer like a useful point of perspective to be like, hey, here's just a thing I invite you to think about. <laughs> and he was just like, well, it's not fair. And they're all wrong. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, I understand that you might be getting very close to the answer to my question. <laughs> but uh, hopefully in like a few days, that person will like think about it more and like maybe come to some new conclusions but we can only hope yeah yeah i look at it the same way i look at any kind of transformation when i'm dealing with someone who is an alleged rapist for example i'm mm -hmm. not that i do that very often but occasionally i do if mm -hmm. i'm able to sow doubt in them that they're right and that everyone else is wrong and that it's a false accusation if i can just shorten the time period it takes for them to come to that conclusion and i shorten it say three months i'm like mm -hmm. yeah that's three months later on where they won't be harmful yeah it's just i take a harm reduction strategy when i talk to these folks yeah absolutely yeah it's just it's not useful to be like everything must change now because it's so egregious and they're so harmful and they can't be allowed to continue and it's like ah oh, it's just people don't work that way we Absolutely. all wish they did they just yeah. don't yeah but fuck i feel vastly underqualified to even be doing coaching even when i'm really clear with people this isn't legal advice i'm not a professional counselor like Please don't take me as like a professional that's trained. I'm like a lay person. I just have a lot of experience doing this mm -hmm. um, from being in these alternative communities where like people don't have access to police and leg and like the law very easily. Yeah. And of course, sexual assault is just like that. People just don't have access to police and the law very easily. Um, so, yeah, it's just like, cool. So I'm a lay coach. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but here are some ways that I might be able to help you reframe what you're thinking about and hopefully... Um, help reduce the amount of misunderstanding and conflict to hopefully salvage something out of this situation so that there will be less harm in future. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fucking challenging though, because there isn't a lot of great training accessibly available to folks about it. Mm -hmm. And because I've been an academic and done a shit ton of reading, and not like academic reading. I didn't actually go to the textbooks. I did something that's very strange for me, which is I went to like forums mm -hmm. and read up on anarchists talking about the actual execution of transformative justice. Mm -hmm. And like, here are all the ways that things went wrong. Here mm -hmm. are all the ways that things could go wrong. And here is this ideal that almost never happens. And it was like, wow, this is some real shit of people talking about real experiences of people yeah. fucking this up really hard. Mm hmm. And that's how you learn what not to do, in my opinion, is like, just go to people that actually have done it because you can talk about transformative justice and how amazing it is. But until you start looking at, you know, what does it look like if a person builds a pod of other people with their intersections of power and just wraps themselves in it to defend themselves against accusations? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it what does it look like when your whole community is looking for a punitive process and you go transformative justice will work and then they're really angry that it's not canceling yeah. that person or it gets used to cancel that person and to punish them? Yeah. And it's sort of like, OK, well, that is some form of community accountability, maybe not transformative justice, but some form. Yeah. People are just all using different terms to talk about different things. And there's so much confusion. And it's just like think about what you want to actually accomplish start with your values move forward with goals get community consensus 
try and implement some form of, in my opinion, mediation or conciliation, which for folks who don't know is like, if you ever pass notes back and forth in class, um, conciliation is like when you have a mediator that tries to soften your position about things and gets a message from you and then goes to the other person and checks in with them and like tries to soften their position about things and sort of functions as a go-between to like right. help help both of you like coach you through de-escalating a bit <clears throat> before you even come together so that you can actually be in the same room yeah yeah so like conciliation is one of those common parts to a lot of these sorts of processes in my reading mm-hmm and when it's not a part of these processes, they tend to go off the rails. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've and, and everyone wants that magic POC fucking thing that they can just like implement and it fixes everything. Yeah. So you'll get folks being like, oh, we just need to do a healing circle. Yeah. Because like, you know, indigenous wisdom. And then yeah. they're, they're trying to do this like really awkward healing circle that just like is relying on very mysticism based ideas and like, isn't really rooted in a, a well thought out methodology or approach. And it's not rooted in indigenous culture a lot of the time. Right. Right. It's, and so it's, it's not like, even led by Like it's not even led by an indigenous person. It's very like, I, I've, I've seen people try and do restorative justice in white communities and adopt <clears throat> that, that kind of thing. And it's not even, close to what a restorative justice circle or a healing circle looks like in an indigenous community. Um, and so people don't get the answers that they're looking for. They don't get the justice that they're looking for because they're not doing it correctly. They've just appropriated it. Right. Um, and expected it to like be some kind of, um, like revolutionary kind of thing when right. if you don't do the work, um, it's not going to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And for me, I think the biggest fail of trying to culturally borrow even, because there are definitely going to be people that appropriate it and make it something totally yep. different and then don't understand why it's not magic. Yeah. Um, but even for people that are trying to be authentic to the thing, even if you get an indigenous facilitator um, in to do a healing circle and it's done authentically, the underpinnings of authority and power that drive the success of those projects in indigenous communities do not exist in white settler communities. Absolutely. If you don't respect the indigenous facilitator running the healing circle, either because of racism or just because, you know, no one's especially racist there. Huh. That'd be, that's a laugh for me, but let's assume that's true. Um, even if no one's racist there, is this person going to have a significant role in your life? Mm-hmm. Are yeah. they going to be an authority figure that has control over implementing and like establishing, implementing and monitoring and ongoing and mediating? No, they're not. Yeah. So how is this in any way going to honor the authority structures that drive the process in its indigenous culture? Yeah. So that's part of the reason why what I do as my practice of community accountability is based around authority structures and which is why my pod is people who are leaders that run that run conventions that um, that are in positions that offer me and confer to me any position of authority so people that are in charge of getting me into educate um, at the conventions I educate at people that are responsible for my volunteering at local community organizations. Those are the people that are on my pod because that duplicates the authority structure, but it's not a healing circle. Yeah. It's something totally different, but it takes the ideas that I believe have made certain types of a community accountability program successful in the past and says, what would they look like reimagined in a way that is appropriate for the, the alternative cultures that I'm currently moving in? Right, right. So there are there are solutions. I really believe there are ways to make these ideas work. We just have to be less of less dumbasses about it. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. have to actually like think about what we're doing and like put a meaningful amount of time and thought and energy into it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, I could talk about this with you all day. Um, <laughs> COVID in the Canadian prison system. What are the risks to incarcerated folks? Go. Um. Hi. Hi, 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 hi. So high. Um, so I, and I'll, I'll tell you the reasons why they are ridiculously high. Um, so you've got people 
in double bunked cells, which means there's not just one person in a cell. Sometimes there's two, sometimes there's three. Um, people can't socially distance. Um, prisons are filthy and disgusting. Um, and CSC has put out press releases saying that they're amping up hygiene and putting in hand sanitizing stations. But um, from what I have read and heard from folks in the system, that is not happening. Um, oh, no. I was watching an interview with a woman whose husband was sent to a prison in Ontario for selling drugs, so a nonviolent offense. He is still in prison. Um, and she says that the prisoners in his unit were given one bottle of sanitizer to clean everything. And once that was out, they were, that was it. Um, there are no hand sanitizing stations in that particular prison that, that she told, she told the news media about, um, even though CSC said that they were going to be installing them. Um, another mm. thing is prisons, Prisoners and guards literally cannot stay away from each other just due to the intrusive nature of the system. Guards have to do bed checks. Um, if if somebody is violent, they have to somehow intervene. Um, and a lot of the times the guards choose violent intervention methods as opposed to nonviolent inter intervention methods because they were not properly trained, because CSC doesn't want to spend the money to do that. Um, the prisons are cramped, um, just naturally. Um, people also share washrooms. They share dining areas. They share showers. Um, the ventilation is shit in a lot of the places. Um, so you have people who have asthma, um, people who may, might develop asthma due to like mold, uh, water damage. Um, so you have all this stuff and then COVID comes in and then you have a lack of healthcare. Um, people who do show symptoms right now are being put into segregation, um, for 24 hours a day. Um, and prisons sounds... are basically on lockdown. So there's a, like a limitation on phone calls. They're not being let outside. Um, even just into the, like the yard. Um, so like it's, it's, it's a ticking time bomb effectively. Um, and watching it explode from the outside is is really scary like for me personally i've got people that i'm friends with that i love very much who are in prison right now um who i have not heard from in a while um <clears throat> and i don't know what their status is um so and i i don't i don't even know if they've gotten out i don't know if they're still if they're being held in segregation i have no idea what's going on so um yeah it's a People who are in prison right now are at a high risk because prisons are effectively a petri dish for this disease. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it seems like it's just ready to explode. Yeah. And it is, it is exploding. Um, like I don't have numbers for recently. Uh, I have numbers for as of May 12th. Okay. So about two days, two days ago, ago. Uh, two prisoners have died. 333 have been diagnosed, 200 are recovering, um, and most of those are in Mission um, and Joliet in Quebec. And the Federal Training Center in Laval um, rep just reported the death of a prisoner uh, a couple days ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's bad. It's, it's starting. It's really bad. I and think it's going to get worse. So that's the thing that I was noticing is like those numbers don't sound scary right now, yeah. but given the conditions that folks are in, it's likely to explode. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is like, we don't have the death penalty in Canada, um, but keeping nonviolent offenders and people who have, who are immunocompromised, um, yeah. in prison, you are sentencing them to death with, with this floating around. Wow. Yeah. That's my personal thought on it. Um, yeah, people have told me I'm being a little bit overdramatic, but I mean, you know. I think I think you're sentencing some of them to death because we have to remember yeah. COVID doesn't have a 100% kill rate. Yeah. Um, but if but they having, have asthma or any kind of sure. pre-existing condition, it, it's like, very it could high. be really bad. Yeah. People with asthma, with pre-existing conditions, people who are smokers, because it's yeah. not like anyone smokes in prison. Um I mean, they're not, they've, they've, 
made it so that you're not allowed to, but now cigarettes are a high trading commodity. Yeah. So that's the other issue. Again, that, (laughs) that black market effect, if people are addicted or they have the need, people will find a way. Absolutely. Yep. Um, it's going to be really curious to see how people start subverting the normal methods of digital surveillance. Yeah. Um, because that will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sounds horrible. And I think the what's worse on top of that is if you are immunocompromised, if you are in a position where you're likely to die if you get infected, you're mm-hmm. now in segregation without a phone or a source of human connection. Yep. I don't know how else to describe that, but an untenable, unethical state of being. Like, we can't be putting people in... I mean, we're looking at lots of people who are middle class who are just having to stay in. They can have video calls as much as they want. They have all the comforts of home. And And they're going bananas. Like, losing their shit to the point where the most extreme people are openly defying quarantine, defying lockdown, and protesting. Wouldn't that be a nice right? Um, for and prisoners to have people who are people who are like, oh, I can't stay inside. I'm like, you wouldn't last a day in prison, not a yeah. day. Like if you can't even stay in your house for two weeks, like yeah, geez, try try a boring cell. So much worse. It's so much the, worse in prison. You don't have the internet. You don't have your phone. No. Like you're just alone in a room with one other person, of course. Oh, and your pro- phone calls are monitored, by the way. Well. I don't know how different that is from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, but, to, to the effect that they are tape recorded and CSC actively listens to all of them. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. Mm hmm. They also look through your mail. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I know a couple of people who have been like, they've effectively gotten charges on top of their charges from forgetting that their phone calls were being recorded oh jesus yeah that's unfortunate yeah yeah and of course we're gonna have all those people being like well but if you didn't have anything to hide and it's like yes and also yeah sometimes sometimes it's just like mundane shit but if it's against prison rules um oh i see they they will they will punish you especially if they don't like you right so if you're saying like i was having a cigarette um, yeah. And you're just telling a family member a story of like a conflict where you got beaten up that starts yeah. with you having a cigarette. CSE is going to come by and be like, why the fuck are you smoking a cigarette? And then they're going to tear your cell apart. Right. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. It's, it's funny how if you're worried about a person treating other people poorly, how like dehumanizing them and like taking their privacy and their, you know, ability to vote and like, because in the U.S. it's ability to vote as well. I don't know yeah. how that functions in Canada. Uh, prisoners can vote here. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, but regardless, they're actually a lot more politically minded than a lot of than most people that I know. <laughs> I would believe that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Prisoners, prisoners publish here in their own journal, don't they? Yeah, it's the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons. Uh, it's uh, managed by one of my professors at U Ottawa, and then another one of like my old professor at uh, Kwantlen. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. And you've had the the it, like opportunity to work with both of those people. Yeah, they're they're both they're brilliant brilliant academics. Uh, it's Justin Pichet and Mike Larson, and there's a bunch awesome. of other people who are who are also editors. Um, <clears throat> they edit for like grammar and um, just general concisiveness sure um but yeah prisoners are allowed to absolutely submit to the journal i mean it's a it's a great way to read academic literature that is written by people who are experiencing the thing that they're writing about looking at um it's and it's an amazing way to amplify prisoners voices as well that's fantastic yeah yeah wow okay so Yes, we've already established holding folks in segregation is not a good solution. Yeah. Um, what sorts of programs are is CSC implementing or have they already implemented to try and improve the situation? Um, like I said, they, they say that they have installed hand sanitizing stations. They've amped up cleaning. Um, but again, if you talk to people on the inside, that's bullshit. Um, wow. They... Uh, and then they're they're looking at releasing some people. They re- they recently released a guy who had massive health problems. 
um, and who was going to be up for release anyway in July. They just released him early. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've released some people from, from BC and other provinces. Um, but other than that, um, they're not doing a whole lot else. Um, they're not giving mm-hmm. staff PPE, which is personal protective equipment. Yeah. Um, they're not giving ma- prisoners uh, masks. Um, they're not doing basically the fucking bare minimum that they should be doing um, in order to prevent the spread of this disease. Because, I mean, prisoners are getting this, but it's also guards are getting this, and then they're bringing it home. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's tough for everybody. And I don't... I'm not the biggest fan of correctional staff. But they don't um, deserve COVID. But no, no, and nobody does. Um, you know, they go into a job every day that is inherently dangerous. Yeah. Um, just because of the nature of the system. Um, I mean, this and this was even before COVID. There was there's there's violence in prisons. It just it exists. Yeah. Um, but Jeez. you know, Sorry, nobody Colin. nobody deserves to go home and then get their kids or you know their immunocompromised partner sick or yeah any number of things that could happen. So yeah, it reminds me of that missionary woman that was working in I think the Philippines. I don't know yeah. if that rings any bells for you, but I she feel was, like I remember this. She was violently sexually assaulted um, during a prison riot. Oh, oh, I do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. It's really ruthless. She was just trying to like improve the situation as like a missionary and like bring religion, which she thought would help and improve oh. things. And like, she's honestly like, regardless of my stance as an atheist, like she's honestly trying to make the situation better and just a kind hearted person. Yeah. Who's yeah. got like brutally destroyed by all these prisoners. And when the, uh, the president was asked about it, he's, he made a comment about how good she looked and that he, oh. he wishes that he could have been first or something like that. And it's just like, why does anyone that is, think that like, that isn't so fucked. That is fucking disgusting. Yeah. It was, it was horrific and granted oh. like i don't think she understood culturally what she was doing or like why it wasn't really appropriate um but fuck nobody deserves that no nobody deserves that and it was oh. just like yeah it made me so sick to to read about it but oh. uh what an absolutely nauseating thing to say too jesus oh yeah that's the thing it's like it's it's funny how people almost expect something that egregious from incarcerated folks which to me is like not something i would expect from incarcerated folks even though that's probably because of my naivety of not seeing how violent the system is and how that system takes violent people and normalizes those behaviors further yeah right like you said how violent the system is or how the system is designed makes it a dangerous place to work i think that's true yeah. Um, not that I have any expertise on the matter, but yeah. So yeah. they're already going into this super dangerous work environment and now they're at risk of catching this disease and they don't have masks on or anything. And for the record, masks don't really protect a person very well. They protect other people. So if all the prisoners had masks and all the guards had masks, everyone would be mostly protected. Yep. But if just the guards have masks, the prisoners are more protected, but the guards aren't that protected at all. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like we need to make sure the prisoners all have masks. And then the worst part is like toxic masculinity is going to play a role there and not everyone's going to wear them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just in this. That's a huge issue in prisons as well, Um, especially like um, for men is like showing who's, you know, who's tough and, um, some people, I mean, there's there's literature on this. Um, there's some people who just they keep their head down and they do their time, and that's it. They don't they don't get involved in fights. They don't get involved right. in anything. But there's also this idea that um, what you bring into prison is what you have learned throughout your life, which I think makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't think people change very much. Um, uh, when they're incarcerated, I think that the ideas that they've brought are amplified because you're in this really bizarre space. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, it is truly bizarre. It's, uh, like I, even just me visiting a prison and being with some, like, um, being with some of the guys in there, um, and talking to them and just hearing about some of the stuff that they talk about. And I'm like, Jesus, this is normal for you. And they're like, yeah, 
And I'm like, oh my God. I, like, I just, it, it totally, it blew my mind. Um, so yeah, I don't think they talk, people talk about prison subculture, but whatever you were, the ideas that you had in the outside world, you bring that shit inside and then it just blows up. Yeah. So if you were already like kind of immersed in toxic masculinity and really, um, did your best to be like the ultimate, like I'm going to use this in air quotes, alpha male, you're going to bring right. that shit in and it's going to get amplified by a thousand. Because it's it's the it's what you know um, it's what you know and it's how you've survived. Yeah. So in order to prevent you getting your ass kicked, uh, you're gonna start a fight immediately. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody else might just you know if I just look down and I don't fucking talk to anybody for two years, I can just get the fuck out of here. Right. So there are you know there are different personalities um, in prisons and for it, yeah. That's super fascinating. Yeah. I feel like the first thing, so it's, it's weird being a person with anxiety because like if I'm driving in front of a police car, I'm just like, so sure the person's going to pull me over, even though I'm like, (laughs) you're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing illegal in your vehicle. Like, yes, I'm a person of color, but like, if I think back, honestly, I have a lot of white passing privilege in terms of how the police deal with me. Yeah. Um, there are definitely times, um, I've been pulled over one time I was, um, coming home from Rogers arena, I work as a, a stagehand and I was doing a rock and roll show. So we were doing a strike at like 2 AM and then I was driving to thank God I was driving two of my white colleagues home with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I know that that may not affect it at all. And I'm not trying to say that's why, but, uh, we're all wearing all black because that's our yeah. uniform at work yeah. and we're driving in a car. We got stuck on one of the side streets being like oh this doesn't turn in the way we thought it did so we're driving slowly in a vehicle without its lights on because i hadn't turned my lights on oh no the cops like pulled us over they're like three dudes wearing all black like in a <laughs> slow moving vehicle without their lights on. <laughs> you're like i know what this looks like <laughs> so thankfully we were all so tired we hadn't thought to remove our wristbands that mm. had backstage pass written on them and like oh, the name God. of the show yeah so we didn't even have to show them like the cops were just like perceptive enough. They're like, um, what exactly is going on here? And I was like, Oh, I'm just, dro- I'm trying to find the house to like drop one of my friends off. We just finished work. And they're like, where do you work? And I was tell them where I worked. I'm like, what do you do? And I told them what I did. And they, they sort of like looked around at the inside of the car and they were like, Oh, okay. Cause yeah. like it kind of checked out for them that we had the wristbands on, but it was like, Oh man, was it ever, was it ever close? That could have ended very differently. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, he, he literally reached in without asking and turned <gasps> my lights on, um, and was like, yeah, you know, if you just, uh, if you set this to auto, um, that's never going to be a problem for you again. And I was like, oh, oh. thank you. Thank you. But also Jesus. Um, I, I just stayed super calm and collected. I was like, I know I have two friends who are witnesses and it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, VPD has definitely had complaints against it, but like. I'm very fortunate that I've never had a specific complaint except for the person at taboo sex show that claimed to be an undercover VPD officer that stopped a scene that was happening, which is super traumatic for people in the scene, um, including the bottom. It was, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Well, because you can lose trust that your top has you, that that you're safe in that space and you're going to this very vulnerable place. Yeah. Um, and I mean, all the more reason not to showcase kink in environments that are dangerous for folks practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's not really my story to tell. So I don't want to say too much. I just wanted to mention like, other than that one time that could have been a civilian illegally masquerading as a VPD officer. Mm -hmm. I've never had a personal complaint, but yeah, yeah, it is what it is. So I can't remember where I was before I digressed. So <laughs> um, we can get back on track in that. I wanted to ask about alternatives, like what sorts of alternatives and you can start with most extreme if you'd like, or you can start with least extreme, but we should go in one direction. Yeah. <laughs> we um, either start with abolitionism or end with abolitionism. Well, I, I think, I mean, the literature that I've been reading, um, I'm in a course that is uh, specifically designed to discuss this issue because it's, very pertinent and um it's really important that criminologists jump on this now as opposed to later Mm -hmm. because later it's going to be too late Mm -hmm. um 
So if it's not been, too late already. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of. I mean, like I, I read a lot of abolitionist literature in general. I am an abolitionist. Um, I'm very much for prisoners' rights. Um, I believe in alternatives to prisons. Um, and a lot of what is being suggested is depopulation. So, and that freaks people out. And I understand there's a lot right. of pushback on that. Um, some abolitionists have been using the hashtag free them all on Twitter and people immediately are like, well, what about, and they jump to like serial killers. They jump to like sexual right. offenders. And like, I get, I get the fear. I get that. Uh, but one, I can promise you, CSC is not going to let those people out. Robert Pickman is not getting out of jail. Right. Um, like absolutely not. Um, they would have to go through a parole process like anybody else. What we're talking about is nonviolent offenders. So we're yeah. talking about people on drug offenses. Um, we're talking about um, like non-armed robbery, things like that. Right. Which so we're talking. We're talking yeah. about like a homeless person that doesn't have a knife or a gun. Yeah, theft. We're talking about theft. Um, Got it. Things like that. Um, so, fraud, which yeah. Which so, is still problematic at a time like this. And also, absolutely, um, there are other ways to sentence people. There are other programs we could put them in. Um, we could also put them on like sort of an indefinite parole um, yeah. time temporary, to be served later. Temporary yeah. leave. There's like there's a lot of stop gaps we could use that don't let people off the hook for all those like really litigious folks that want to see people, quote unquote, do their time. Yeah. Yeah. And for and, folks that are, and when we say drug offenses, we don't mean assault. No. We don't mean assault related to drugs. We don't mean gun possession related to drugs. Those no. would be probably violent offenses, I would think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Possession of a weapon, I'm not sure what that counts as. Um, I, oh, it's, that's tough. I think it would depend on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. But it's even usually if a charge that's stacked on top of something else. Right. Yeah. But even if we didn't address that in and of itself if we just talked about people that were busted for marijuana possession like 10 years ago yeah heroin um, possession now sure like literally people that had possession of an illegal substance and we just went we're we're going to let you out on indefinite temporary leave yeah um because we don't want you to contract covid and die because yeah. you got caught with drugs that other people are currently doing everywhere and that in places like is it paraguay where they're legal now uh, all drugs? I think Paraguay made all Por uh, drugs Portugal. Legal. Portugal. I'm they've, so sorry. They've decriminalized everything. Um, yeah. It's, I apologize uh, to Latin Americans everywhere. It's, it's a good, it, it's a, it's a fantastic model and it's what we should be using here to address the fentanyl crisis. Right. So the country in Europe, not the Spanish descended Latin American country yeah. in South America. My bad. Yeah, Portugal. And yeah. it's a great proof on the idea that if you make drug offenses legal, like you essentially remove any idea of drug offense in the way we think of them, yeah. that society doesn't go to hell. You also reduce addiction rates. Um, you sure. definitely reduce the prison population. Um, you, I mean, you, you increase social services, but you also like decrease the... Uh, burden is a bad word, but like the so the cost, the financial yeah. cost. Yeah. So it's sort of like when we implemented Insight. Yeah. It's like you're looking at something that reduces addiction rates, something that reduces criminal charges, something that saves lives, and yeah. something that saves money. Yeah. What is like that's a quadruple bottom line. Like, what is the possible? drawback and you yeah. get conservatives saying there's a moral drawback and i'm like i just don't see it and like, I, you, I i can't see it like I, I i i think it's immoral to let people die when you have the opportunity to save their lives i do too and i don't understand how helping people use fewer drugs is immoral i think that's a moral thing um yeah. if they if you give them an option to make the choice to get clean fuck i think that's amazing if you can encourage even like three percent of people to do that i would say yep. we should fund that program because yeah oh and when you talk about like the intricacies of addiction and shame the way that we talk about addiction as people being criminal and people being bad and it, it being like uh you know the way we use these horrible phrases like leeches on society etc cetera, oh, etc cetera, or awful. predatory yeah. and like you start thinking about the way that shame and addiction like 
they're just so fucking intertwined sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, of course, when you legalize all drugs and you start framing it as a mental health issue, it reduces addiction just in the framing, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, th- I think Portugal is killing it on that front. And I don't see any issue with, at the very least, offering like a temporary indefinite leave for nonviolent, especially drug offenders. There's a there's something called a temporary absence release in Canada where um, basically what happens is there. I don't know if they're, they're using it a whole lot right now, but what happens is they release somebody from custody and then they say, uh, we're going to electronically monitor you. Um, and then once COVID improves, if it's eradicated in the prison that you were in, you are coming back to serve the rest of your sentence. Sure. Um, which is a solution. It's not I mean, one that I'm a huge fan of as an abolitionist. Um, sure. But, you know, it's it's something right now in the interim that we can do for people. Um, but that's providing that they have a place to go. So, right. Um, They've done this with, with a couple of people. They've sent them out, put electronic monitors on them, and basically said, you're under house arrest. Right. Um, and then once this situation improves, we're going to come pick you up and haul you back to jail. And which, prisoners which are just sucks. like, okay, I'll take it. Totally. You get to live it's at not, home instead of in a prison. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. What a, and, and again, this goes back to that idea of having community, being around your family, being able to yeah. experience human connection. Absolutely. Yeah. Having um, those opportunities for self-growth and personal expression that, like, lead to healing that can be part of rehabilitation. Totally. Like, those are the things that I feel are absent from our current corrections Well, we don't model. Our, they have rehabilitation programs. And, like, um, the nature of my research with, with – I do arts-based um, mm. research in prison and, art like, artistic work with prisoners because I have a background in theater – um, but like, you know, those CSC is not a place to rehabilitate and our correctional system as it stands now and in the United States as well, it is not a space to get better. Um, it's a space, it's effectively saying, go to your room, don't come out until I tell you. Right. And if that doesn't work with kids, it sure as shit doesn't work with adults. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about levels of development that, yeah sometimes are correlated with offending yeah yeah you're looking at adults that maybe didn't get the same socialization or quality time or learn the same lessons that other people did yeah and adults in like um adults who have uh things like fasd um which is a a massive issue that's happened that is in prisons as well i mean there's Mm. a lot of kids or a lot of kids who have fetal alcohol syndrome who end up in the prison system um, because there's a, a lack of impulse control. Right. Um, yeah, totally. And, and there's a, there's a huge lack of treatment around it as well. I mean, I've, that's, I've a, that's about a that. disease that's also very stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're super predisposed to be taken advantage of by yes. criminals who will essentially be like, Hey, go do this thing for me. And they'll be like, I Absolutely. don't see a problem with that. Sure. Yeah. I'm, you're my friend. I'm happy yeah. to do that. And you know, then they get caught holding the bag as it were. Um, and they're the one who goes to jail and they're like, I don't understand. Yeah. 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 It's, um, we have some really dark fucking places in our legal code that do not make space for the humanity of people and the diversity of experience of people who offend. And if you, like, if you look at mental health in prisons, um, and the way that that's addressed, I mean, you look at like the Ashley Smith case, I mean, she was put into segregation they stripped all the tiles out of her cell. They took her bed from her. Um, she was wearing a paper gown and she was choking herself. And two guards stood outside and watched her die. Wow. That's how we treat people with mental illness in prison. Um, and it's it's really sad. There was another woman named Terry Baker who had serious mental health issues. Again, she was put in isolation. She was strapped to a bed and strapped down by her neck and her torso for days. Um, And then she, uh, she committed suicide. Um, Wow. And there was a huge correct, like if you Google just Ashley Smith, there's a huge amount of, there's documentaries, the OCI, which is the office of the correctional investigator did a massive inquiry on her death and basically said to CSC, you fucked up. 
right. you fucked up big time. She was asking for help. Um, two days before she died, she asked if she could be transferred to a, a psychiatric facility, and she was told that there were no beds for her. Even Oof. though she was exhibiting these, hor- like she she had been choking herself for days, um, and basically communicating that she wanted to die and that she needed, right. help, and they didn't do anything for her. Um, I think she was like nineteen. Oh my god! She was she was just a she was just a kid. So the next thing that hits me in the face is like I know what incarceration rates look like for femmes that are nineteen, mm-hmm. and they're almost exclusively non-white. But the name yeah. Ashley Smith screams to me that this was probably a white person. Yes, she was white. That's just like, what did, so, and this is the typical asshole reaction is the first thing I have to ask is like, how did you even get to prison as a 19 year old white woman? Um, she had a history of, um, like emotional outbursts. Um, she had been in youth correctional facilities. Um, and then she was sent to GVI, which is a women's prison in Ontario, Mm. Grand Valley institution for women. It's just um, incredible to me she didn't get more support or help for mental health stuff. Oh, the day she turned 18, they shipped her to a federal institution. <laughs> that yeah. sucks. And, like, the coverage that she got for being white. Right. There are indigenous women who have experienced the same thing. Oh, who sure. Who also died, who get nothing. They get Absolutely. no coverage. It's, like, yeah, it's it's just, it's It's because it's, it's super racist. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, the system and that's, is stacked against them completely. Absolutely. And if you look at the numbers, it's like, it's staggeringly stacked against them. Like, not just like two to one, not just like 10 to one. Like in some cases, we're talking like 49 to one. Yeah. In BC, um, they make up 47% of the prison population. Do you mean Indigenous women? Yes. Of the total population or of the femme population? Uh, I think it's just for the femme population. Right. That's still, that's still unbelievably high. And yeah. it gets Indigenous worse if you... people in general make up 30, it's 36 or something, Jesus. 32 to 36. I can't remember yeah. the exact number. Um, and I doubt, I doubt they're even 20% of the Canadian population. I don't know what they're, it is. They're uh, 2 to 5%. Oh, that's I think bad. They're, I think, yeah, 2, two to 5. I can't remember the exact percentage. Yeah. If you start looking at, at, at young offenders it gets even worse yeah especially yeah. if you go to the prairies where racism is the worst i think it they was either a, a massive like it's, it's almost obscene. the entire prison system yeah there's um one province i believe it's manitoba mm-hmm. where in juvenile offenders that are it's, it's always more dramatic if i start with saskatchewan because they're also nutty it's something like um like 90 percent ish is like 84 yeah. percent or 90 percent depending on um gender yeah. so like in in young male offenders i think it's 84 percent indigenous or something like that i've posted these stats before in a previous episode yeah um one i did with you yeah um but i should try and find them again but um with um young with juvenile femme offenders like girls it was something like i think 98 percent indigenous two percent non-indigenous yeah it was just like egregious like you look at that number and you're like you know we we like to think we're not taking people's kids anymore but oh we are the i mean the the foster system does it the adoption system and the criminal system as well yeah yeah we have a lot of issues to work out in the country of ways that we are still totally victimizing people on a state level oh yeah like we've stopped the 60 scoop but have we really i don't think so yeah well it's it's interesting because i feel like instead of treating indigenous folks like we treated them in the 60s we're now treating them like we treated white folks in the 60s um which in terms of fostering is not good Mm -hmm. yeah um now we have all these interventions for white folks all the steps we go through to prevent having to take a kid from a home and those same interventions are not being done in indigenous homes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like we're still doing the same thing in mm-hmm. a really different way. Yeah. It's almost like it's almost like people feel less accountable, I think, about it. Like they feel less responsible mm-hmm. because they're just not giving help rather than actively going in and taking children in a much more malicious sort of intentional way. It's like people can justify this in their own minds if they're part of the system better. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
but it's still trash and it's still taking people's kids. So it's something yeah. we need to hopefully deal with. So on that note, what's, what do you feel like your role is as a researcher in helping Canada make these changes? Um, I think, I think it's important for academics, especially if you work in criminology, social science, um, sociology to, we talk about in criminology, it's something called, uh, making like public criminology. So actively engaging with nonprofits, actively engaging with the government, um, engaging with Corrections Canada. Uh, you can do things like team up with like E. Fry and John Howard and you can produce reports and the government will actually, I mean, hopefully, actually read these reports. Um, so instead of being in like keeping yourselves locked up in the ivory tower, which so many of us do, um, just because you know, you tell someone, do you want to read my dissertation? And they're like, wow, I'd, I'd really rather not. Um, <laughs> I would literally rather do anything else than read your fucking dissertation. Um, can can you, you summarize that? Can, yeah, yeah. can you summarize the hundred pages in one page or less? And yeah, people are like, it, no. Yeah. But if you condense it and put it into language that people can respond to, understand is the big one. Um, mm. I hate reading academic articles because half the time I'm like, I've been in this career since like 2016 and I'm, st I still Google like half of a paper. Like, what does this right. word mean? What does that word mean? So for myself, um, the way that I write is the way that I often speak. Um, so I, mm. I really try to make it understandable for people. And that means defining terms as you go along. Um, where do people find your stuff like online? Like, do you have a website that like publishes your ideas? Uh, I have a Medium account what I, that I've written two articles on, okay. um, and then I have my thesis online, but uh, that's full of academic jargon, and it's quite if you, if you want help implementing a website, like I would do that for you as a freebie. Okay, sure. So we can chat more about that off of... Um, but yeah, like the other question I was going to ask is how can lay folks help you do your best work? Like what kinds of support do researchers need from lay folks? So... I think right now, like with this pandemic that's going on, um, we, we need a lot, like what we basically need people to do is do shit that we do, which is contact your representatives, right. tell them, tell them your concerns. Um, I can give you a website. Uh, this is from the criminalization and punishment education project that does a lot of activist work in the community. Um, and right now they have a list of demands to send to, um, MPs and representatives and the ministry of community safety and correctional services. Mm -hmm. So they have a list of demands, like pr you have to give prisoners free soap, sanitizer, bleach, cleaning supplies, mm -hmm. PPE, things like that. Um, so this letter is already written. All people have to do is plug their name, email address, and postal code into it. Great. And then it will be sent off to their representatives. Um, so the main thing I think what people can do to support researchers is, you know, contact the people in power, write letters, write emails. Those are powerful. Um, create petitions. Um, if you can financially support criminalized folks, um, who mm -hmm. are reintegrating into the community, that is so powerful and it means so much to them. Um, and it means a lot to us as researchers, um, and, and activists because, a lot of the folks in criminology that I know are not just academics. We are also, we're also activists and we're also out in the community because we care about our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And for another awesome session. Well, thank you. So how was it intimates? Did you love something you heard or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. 
You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw. 